The following is a sermon from the Edgington Evangelical Presbyterian Church in Taylor Ridge, Illinois. Neighbor, and I'd like to invite you to open up to the book of Genesis in Genesis 27 because uh, of uh, breaking of this ninth commandment is all over this chapter. And uh, we are studying uh, last week and this week all of Genesis 27, which is a high drama chapter. So uh, turn with me to Genesis 27. It's on page 21 there of a Bible in the rack if you need one or any Bible that you have. Let's turn there together. Uh, And we are seeing part two of this uh, sincere drama that's happening in the life of uh, the patriarchal family. So as you're turning there, I'll, I'll review some of the details of last week just to make sure that we're all caught up. Uh, but as you're going there, one of the things that I think is uh, most easy to kind of stumble over in these chapters of Genesis is that because you and I don't live in an ancient Near Eastern culture, there are aspects of family life that we don't necessarily practice that were commonplace at this time, namely the practices of a birthright and blessing. Those concepts translate somewhat but it could be easily misunderstood by us. A birthright would be the rights belonging to the firstborn son to have a double portion of their father's household as an inheritance. A birthright would be a double portion value of an inheritance. But a blessing, a blessing coming from your father was more than just a mere good wish of good things to happen for you, but a a blessing in this culture was something of a form of a legal and spiritual compact, a last will and testament, if you will. So you perhaps, I hope, uh, have a last will and testament, uh, a declaration of your intent uh, upon your death, uh, but a blessing was a form of that uh, where it could be divided, a blessing could be divided, but there was always a primary recipient of the blessing, or to translate it, there would always be a primary executor of the estate. To get the primary covenantal blessing was to be the executor of the spiritual estate. It was also determinative of destiny, asking the Lord to grant, according to His will, the covenant blessing. So, uh, I hope that that is somewhat helpful to you because what we're seeing here in these chapters uh, is uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the family of the patriarchs, pass down this covenant blessing. And because it's such an important concept, I want to just briefly review where all of this comes to, uh, where it's come from, so that we come back to Genesis 27 with a bit of knowledge. So this is, this is all an on-ramp now, okay? So... Come back with me to Genesis chapter 12 very quickly, and we're just going to hit a few high points of the mountain peaks and see how it is that we arrive with this blessing controversy in Genesis 27. Because all the way back in Genesis 12, God told Abraham that he would be blessed and also that through him would come a promised descendancy. Genesis 12 verse 2, God says to Abram, I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you. You see that there in verse 2? I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. There was this promised blessing that would flow from generation to generation. And that promise moves from Abraham to Isaac. Even though Isaac has an older half-brother named Ishmael, Isaac is the heir of the promise according to the will of God. Go forward into Genesis 17. Genesis 17 and verse 18. At Genesis 17 and verse 18, uh, Abraham says to God, Oh, that Ishmael, 
Abraham's firstborn son. Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. And God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac, a secondborn son to Abraham. And God says there, I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. So the blessing is not going to go to the firstborn son, as would be common in the culture, but rather the secondborn son according to God's promise, Isaac. Isaac is indeed born. Go forward into Genesis 25. Uh, In Genesis chapter 25, at verse 11, after Abraham dies, Genesis 25, verse 11 says, After the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac his son. And that is not just a, a common form of, you know, God wanted good things to happen to Isaac. No, it is the transfer of covenantal blessing to the next generation patriarch to receive the promises of God. So it goes from Abraham to Isaac. And then when Isaac had twin sons, even though one was technically older and born first, his name was Esau, it was God's purpose that the blessing of the covenant would go to Jacob. Look over to Genesis 25 and now verse 23. Genesis 25 and verse 23 says, and the Lord says to uh, the Lord says to uh, uh, Isaac's wife, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the older, the other, and the older shall serve the younger. Or if we were to use their names, Esau, the older, will serve Jacob, the younger. Again, it's flipping the normal cultural order when God is saying, according to my grace and promise, by my covenant, the blessing will move from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob. And what we saw last week in Genesis 27 is that Isaac was intent to disobey this word from God. Isaac was intent to bless Esau rather than Jacob and disobey the word of the Lord and extend that blessing to Esau, but by some scheming and deceiving and lying and cunning tactics, it was actually given to Jacob according to God's will, but by human scheming. If you were to look back into the first part of Genesis 27, uh, Jacob uh, is, is covered with uh, his brother's shirt, according to his mother's design, wears goat skin on his arm so that he would be hairy like his brother. Uh, his mom prepares the stew and takes it into his dad, and then dad thinks it's the older son and says, I'll bless you, thinking that it's Esau, all the while it was actually Jacob. It was a mess last week. It was an absolute drama of a mess last week, but that's the story, and the whole story is is that uh, there's problems all over the place. Last week we saw that this story highlights the grace of God and the sovereignty of God, even though everybody comes out looking quite bad. Because Isaac resists the will of God and is easily deceived. Esau is only naturally minded with no spiritual interest in the covenant. Rebekah, Isaac's wife, even though she knows rightly that the promise is supposed to go to Jacob, she tries to manipulate God's purposes. And Jacob, he's the implementer of all of the deception. And all of this makes us wonder, and we were thinking about this at the end last week, isn't the Bible just supposed to be a bunch of moral stories of superheroes? And the answer was no. None of these people are clean. None of them are innocent. Every one of them is guilty. Jacob receives the line of the covenant, and we wonder, Lord, how in the world could grace go to somebody like Jacob? Except we should stop when we ask that question and realize We're saying, Lord, how can grace go to a sinner? When we realize that in many ways, all of us are like Jacob. 
The point of the story is that God's grace does not triumph because of us, but in spite of us. God's grace triumphs over our deception. God's grace triumphs over our sin. And this morning we return to the second part of this scene, on the other side of the deception, immediately after the deception, as the drama continues to unfold, with Esau intent to still receive a blessing. Let me just outline the passage for you quickly, and then we will pray and read the text. Okay? Long on-ramp, but sometimes that's necessary. Okay? So let me outline this text. Just like an earthquake has reverberating shockwaves, there are reverberating shockwaves of this incident. In verses 30 to 36, we're going to find the reactions of Esau and Isaac to Jacob's deception. And then in verses 37 to 41, we're going to find Esau insisting on a blessing still yet to be received. And then 42 and following is the consequences that come for this family because of everybody's scheming. So that's a very simple outline here. So if you've got your Bible open, now we're ready to pray and hear the scriptures. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we come now to your word, thankful that you give to us the scriptures in a language that we can read and understand. And Father, as we open the Bible together, we see a great struggle in this family. And Lord, it reveals indeed a great struggle in our own hearts as well. So we pray that by your spirit you would speak according to your word, that we might receive it by faith with illumination and understanding, that we might indeed receive your warning and receive also your grace, leading us to obedience and blessing through Jesus Christ, we ask it. Amen. Now hear Genesis 27, at verse 30 through the end of the chapter. This is the Word of God. As soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, when Jacob had scarcely gone out from the presence of Isaac his father, Esau, his brother, came in from his hunting. He also prepared delicious food and brought it to his father, and he said to his father, Let my father arise and eat of his son's game, that you may bless me. His father Isaac said to him, Who are you? He answered, I am your son, your firstborn, Esau. Then Isaac trembled very violently and said, Who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me, and I ate it all before you came, and I have blessed him? Yes, and he shall be blessed. As soon as Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me, even me also, O my father. But he said, your brother came deceitfully, and he has taken away your blessing. Esau said, Is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has cheated me these two times. He took away my birthright, and behold, now he has taken away my blessing. Then he said, Have you not reserved a blessing for me? Isaac answered and said to Esau, Behold, I have made him lord over you, and all his brothers I have given to him for servants, and with grain and wine I have sustained him. What then can I do for you, my son? Esau said to his father, But have you but one blessing, my father? Bless me, even me also, O my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. Then Isaac his father answered and said to him, Behold, away from the fatness of the earth shall your dwelling be, and away from the dew of heaven on high. By your sword you shall live, and you shall serve your brother but when you grow restless, you shall break his yoke from your neck. Now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, The days of mourning for my father are approaching, then I will kill my brother Jacob. 
But the words of Esau, her older son, were told to Rebekah. So she sent and called Jacob, her younger son, and said to him, Behold, your brother Esau comforts himself about you by planning to kill you. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice. Arise, flee to Laban, my brother in Haran, and stay with him a while until your brother's fury turns away, until your brother's anger turns away from you, lest he forgets what you have done to him. Then I will send and bring you from there. Why should I be bereft of you both in one day? Then Rebekah said to Isaac, I loathe my life because of the Hittite women. If Jacob marries one of the Hittite women like these, one of the women of the land, what good will my life be to me? Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of God abides forever. So let's do keep our Bible open here. Like I said, earthquake and aftershocks, reverberations, first of all, reactions, blessings, and consequences. So first of all, these reactions. Immediately following all of this activity uh, is this immediate reaction, and the reaction reveals two different inclinations. There are really two different tracks of emotion that are present between Isaac and his son Esau. Isaac is going to be confronted with the reality of his decisions, or we should say the reality of his sins. And Isaac is going to be led to repentance, and Esau is going to be confronted with the reality of all of this and dig his feet into the ground and harden his heart. So, let's look again at verses 30 and 33. As soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, when Jacob had scarcely gone out from the presence of Isaac, his father, Esau, his brother, came in from his hunting. Isaac learns immediately that he has blessed Jacob rather than Esau, whom he intended to bless. Now, it was, of course, God's purpose that Jacob received this blessing. Isaac was planning incorrectly, was deceived, but God's purposes are still going to stand because it was God's purpose that Jacob received the line of the covenant. Jacob received the covenantal blessing, but Isaac was intended to disobey the Lord, but God's sovereignty superintends over against Jacob's uh, and, and Isaac's disobedience to still bring about his purposes. But notice Isaac's reaction to what happens when he realizes all of this mess. It's all happening right before him, even though he has dimly lit eyes, as the Bible says earlier, but he sees clearly now what's happened. In verse 33, it says, Then Isaac trembled very violently. He trembled violently. Now, uh, this phrase in Hebrew is very difficult to translate into English because the language is so emphatic. Uh, we could read this as Isaac is realizing this and he has now become shaken to his very core. His very being is shook by all of this reality. Not simply the realization that he has been deceived. Though he, of course, wakes up to that reality. He gave the blessing to Jacob rather than Esau. It's not simply that he has been deceived, but rather the realization that his intent to bless Esau instead of Jacob was contrary to the Word of God. Isaac, in this moment, wakes back up to the realization that when God said the blessing was to go to Jacob and he planned to give it to Esau, that Isaac sinned against God. And that realization 
is what causes him to shake and tremble violently. This is a trembling man who has realized that he has sinned against God with his intent. His trembling is a man shook to the bones, trembling against his Maker. Not just that he has been deceived, but that he has violated God's clear word, and that causes him to tremble. So you see his trembling in verse 33, but also there in verse 33, you see the realization that he says, if I have blessed Jacob, then Jacob shall be blessed. See that at the end of verse 33. Then Isaac trembled very violently and said, Who was it that hunted game and brought it to me? And I ate before you came, and I have blessed him. And he says, Yes, and he shall be blessed. Isaac is, in a sense, waking up to the reality that God will always have his way. God's will and purposes will always come to pass. Isaac is saying, I was not intent to bless Jacob, but God was intent that Jacob be blessed. Isaac is admitting, I have been made a fool, and God's purposes will always come to pass. God's ways are established despite my misintent, Isaac is realizing. Isaac is here realizing what the prophet Isaiah will say many generations later when the prophet Isaiah says that God's ways are higher than our ways. His purposes are deeper than our purposes. And according to God's sovereign will, He always accomplishes His plans, even despite Isaac's misintent. God will always have His way. That is Isaac's reaction. But then notice Esau's. Starkly different there in verse 34. As soon as Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me, even me also, O my father. You should read this in the most whining toddler voice you can imagine, okay? What about me? Where's mine? What about me? That's what's happening. You see it in verse 34. You also see it again in verse 38. Do you have just one blessing, oh my Father? Bless me. What about me? What about mine? Bless me also, my Father. What's the answer to the question? Do you have just one blessing? To bless generally, sure, yes. But to bless covenantally, what's the answer? No. There is not an additional covenantal blessing to be shared because it goes only to one son. There is only one covenant blessing, and Esau knows that, and that's why he's so mad about both the birthright and the blessing episode, because he knows that these things can't be shared. He can be blessed generally as Isaac's son, but he cannot receive the blessing of the covenant. But still, he insists, bless me also. What, what's, what's happening in these reactions? What should we see in this? What is it teaching us? Well, Isaac is confronted with his sin and confesses and says God's ways are always right, and Isaac's heart is softened to the Lord in his ways, but Esau has no regard for these spiritual things, hardens his heart, digs his feet into the ground, and wants a separate blessing. You should read that as Esau wants an exception to the rule. What is this the equivalent of? 
I think this is the equivalent of someone coming to God with an, this objection. You may have heard it before. You maybe have made it yourself. Esau comes to God, essentially, comes to his father and says, why is there only one covenant blessing? Why just one? Which is the exact equivalent of someone digging their heels into the ground and saying to God, just why is Jesus the only way anyway? Why just one? Shouldn't there be another? Won't you grant me an exception amongst all humanity? You say there's only one way, but what about me? What about my ways being established? What about me? Make me an exception. I demand it. That's what's happening here. Isaac is bowing before the Lord's purpose, and Esau is making demands in the face of the Lord's purpose. It's a stark contrast of true and false repentance. It also asks us to consider the question here, what do you do when you are confronted with your sin? Do you, like Isaac, realize what you've done, confess and realize his ways are right? Or do you, like Esau, dig your heels in the ground and say, I demand an exception? What do you do when you are confronted with your sin? So you see the reaction. And then secondly, notice how Esau still insists. Esau wants this blessing to still come to him. But you know what one of the most dangerous things in the world is? One of the most dangerous things that can happen for us is to God, for God to give you everything you want. One of the most dangerous things that can happen is for God to give us what we want because until He changes our hearts, we don't want Him. So if He gives us what we want, it won't really bless us. Notice what happens in verse 39 and following. Esau lifts up his voice, he weeps, then Isaac his father answered, verse 39, and says, Behold, away from the fatness of the earth shall your dwelling be, away from the dew of heaven on high. This is a blessing that's actually a curse. Do you see this? Verse 40, by your sword you shall live and you shall serve your brother, Jacob. And when you grow restless, you shall break his yoke from your neck. Esau, your life is going to be often fruitless, full of peril, with strife and hostility against your brother. And that's exactly what Esau wants because in the text it says he plans to kill his brother. Isaac is giving his son Esau exactly what he wants. You know, in Greek culture, there's an old saying that says, the ones whom the gods want to destroy, they will grant them all of their wishes. If the gods want to destroy someone, they will grant them all of their wishes. Esau doesn't have the benefit of knowing about the value of unanswered prayers, if you like. He's got to wait like seven millennia for Garth Brooks to sing that song. Esau doesn't know about that. But the point being here is that Esau insists to his own peril that he still gets what he wants. And listen, you are tempted. You and I are hardwired and tempted to feel bad for Esau in this chapter. We look at him and go, shucks. Poor guy. All he was was the older brother who was a better hunter. Dad liked his stew better anyway. He missed out on the blessing. We feel bad for him. We see him in verse 38 crying out and weeping. 
You feel bad for the guy, don't you? But you have to ask the question, and I think the text presents the issue of, is Esau remorseful? He doesn't like the consequences of all of this. He's angry about it. He's ashamed. He's embarrassed. He's ready to kill his brother Jacob. He's remorseful, yes. But the point is, is he repentant? And the answer is no. In fact, the book of Hebrews comments on this scene. In Hebrews 12, verse 17, it says this, For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he, that is Esau, found no chance to repent though he sought it with tears. Esau is remorseful but not repentant. And we know that because Esau thinks the one to blame is Jacob. So again, how do, how do you respond when you're confronted with the reality of your own sin? Take Esau as an example and ask yourself, do I do this? What does Esau do? He points a finger, right? And he says, the problem is that guy, my brother. He's the one who deceived. He's the one who tricked. Esau points a finger and he says, you know what my problem is? My problem is out there. Namely, it's somebody else's fault. I am a victim. I'm not guilty. It's not my fault. It's his fault. Bless me. In spite of all of this, it's not my fault. Right? But listen to what Calvin says about true repentance by way of contrast to Esau's action here. Calvin says, the very beginning of repentance is grief felt on account of sin together with self-condemnation. What that means is that when presented with the issue, the foolish person says, the problem's out there, right? And I'm a victim of something or someone else. It's not my fault. The fool says, points outward. But what does the wise person do when confronted? Says what? It's me. I'm, I'm the problem. It's my sin. The problem is in me. Now to be clear, Jacob has also sinned here, and so when Esau is focused on Jacob, it's classic blame shifting, right? What about him? He did something wrong too. Why are you talking about me? Why are you focused on what I've done? It's a sense if a parent is disciplining two children and they've got a spat between them. You say, hold off, I'm not talking to him, I'm talking to you. I'm talking to you right now, right? God is in a sense putting Esau under the magnifier of his justice and saying, Esau, don't shift the blame. You know, God deals with us individually. Esau should have turned to the Lord, but he doesn't. He digs his heels into the ground intent the heir of the covenant, which is effectively to set himself in opposition against the Lord of the covenant. Esau digs in. What is the consequence of all of this? Well, the consequences of all of this are both immediate and soon coming. There are consequences for the family. The rest of the text goes on to describe very quickly at least five things. Isaac, as a father, is dishonored on his own deathbed. His own family is scheming against him on his very deathbed, manipulating their purposes, but the Lord's purpose is still going to stand. But Isaac is dishonored on his deathbed. Secondly, Esau hates his brother. 
conspires to kill him, and that's going to be his plan for several chapters. Thirdly, Jacob is going to be sent away from his own household, and so his mother's plan to have her favorite son be blessed and keep him inside the home actually results in her having to say to him, you better go because your brother's going to kill you, and I don't want to lose you too. My first son, Esau, is effectively lost to me because he knows that his own mother manipulated his father against him. So he's gone. Jacob, I don't want to lose you too, so you better run. You better go. Jacob, who is set to inherit his own father's wealth, is going to end up on his own, then later at his uncle's house for 20-some years, even though he's the heir to a vast fortune, going to work hard labor with unfair wages, and the trickster is going to get out-tricked. This is coming down the line, but his uncle Laban is going to out-scheme the great schemer, Jacob. And in a sense, Jacob's deception is going to come home to roost in consequence and his life. Rebecca is heartbroken, bereft of her son, and she thinks Esau needs to cool off for a bit. Then Jacob can come back, but Rebecca is never going to see her favorite son again. She is effectively losing both children at this moment. So imagine a mother's heartache at the same time. She will never see her son again. She says even there, I loathe my life. There in verse 46, do you see that? Rebecca says this. The reason why she says that is because her older son, Esau, hauled off and married whoever he wanted. Married Canaanite women who weren't of the covenant. And Rebecca says, if my younger son, Jacob, does that, what will my life be to me? So I want to make sure that he marries a woman inside the faith, sends her off to her brother's house so that he'll be protected, both for who he marries and so his brother doesn't kill him. Drama everywhere still, right? The point is, is that sin has consequence. You see? Even multi-generational consequence. Now listen, here's the point. Most every single teenager grows up thinking, my parents are the most unreasonable, hateful, and unloving people imaginable. Why? Because they announce consequences and hopefully enforce them, right? They announce consequences and enforce them. Now we can all admit, we've all been in these situations, it takes about a decade or two to realize that your parents actually knew something growing up, right? It takes a while to realize that they knew what they were talking about, that we should have obeyed all along, etc. But you know what? This translates spiritually. This whole principle of sin and consequence and disrupting the family, it all translates spiritually into the reality of the Bible says God is as a father who disciplines his children. And God disciplines in this way, quoting Hebrews 12, which is also quoting Proverbs 31. The book of Proverbs says, Hebrews asks, Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by Him, for the Lord disciplines the one He loves and chastises every son whom he receives. And that is a hard lesson, isn't it? Receiving the correction, receiving the chastisement, receiving the discipline of God Himself. 
And why does he do it? The Bible says, because he loves you. Because he loves you. And because he is wiser than you. Look, the fact of the matter is, we see this evident in each one of these four people's lives. Isaac and Rebekah and Jacob and Esau. Sin is a great marketer. It markets itself fabulously, but the product is horrendous. It promises the world and delivers death. It promises joy and satisfaction, but it delivers hopelessness. And these family members realize that. And we, as God's own children, need to realize that when God brings discipline into our life and correction and chastisement, He's doing it because He loves us. Just like a parent, when they discipline their children, they don't love to discipline their children, but they discipline their children because they love them. The point being is that God loves you too much to leave you the way that you are. We need to repeat that to ourselves. God loves you too much to leave you the way that you are. So He's at work to cause you to grow. And that work of what we call sanctification sometimes looks like discipline or chastisement, and it's not always pleasing to us, right? Sometimes it involves a bit of hurt along the way, and we're tempted to think, what are you doing? Right? But He is for us. How do you know that despite God's discipline, He's for you? Because God has already poured out all of the wrath toward your sin upon His Son in your place. And so when God moves towards you with correction, it's not out of wrath. It's out of mercy. It's out of love. It's out of correction to restore you to His fellowship because Jesus Christ has already assumed all the wrath that God will ever have for any of your sin entirely. And now He moves towards you in mercy. And then you say, but it doesn't always feel that way, right? Correction, discipline, chastisement, it doesn't always feel that way. I'll give it to you this way, by way of illustration, moving towards a closing here. When Cora started to crawl, she was pretty intent to crawl down flights of stairs. That was her plan. And she was going to go there as fast as she could. You pick her up and intercept her, and she'd spin around and look at you with this sad and frustrated look, effectively saying if she could speak, she would say, Why don't you love me? Let me do what I want. If you really loved me, you'd let me do whatever I wanted. And what's the response, actually? And what does God say to us in our discipline? He's saying, no, I love you too much to let you do that to yourself. So I'm going to pick you up, spin you around, and you might give me that look, but one day you'll learn that I know what I'm doing when I keep you from hauling off and throwing yourself down a flight of stairs. That means that He loves you in correction. He loves you in discipline. He loves you in spite of your sin. He loves you enough to lead you away from rebellion and back to Him. But sometimes it takes a long time to learn that lesson. And what we're going to see as we continue, God willing in the Scriptures, is that it's going to take Jacob a long time to learn these lessons. So you can take comfort that if it's taking you a long time, you're in good company with all the saints because it's going to take Jacob quite a while. And by God's grace, he is at work in Jacob's life now. 
And He is at work in your life now because He loves you too much to leave you the way that you are. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word and its truth, teaching us, correcting us, equipping us for all things needful for righteousness and obedience. So, Lord, as Your Spirit searches our hearts, reveal what we need to turn from, and reveal to us that You are the one to whom we must turn. Out of grace and love and mercy, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's sermon. If you would like more information about our church or its ministries, please visit edgingtonepc.org. May God bless and keep you.